Hello, this is Barry Winbolt with another episode of Get a Better Handle on Life. Thanks for joining me. Before I jump in, I just want to let you know that there's a webinar coming up in two weeks on Eventbrite, one of my free webinars that I do monthly, most months anyway, and this one's entitled Be More Confident Even When You Don't Feel Like It. The event will shake up your thinking and give you a whole new take on what confidence means to you and what's been holding you back. I'll tell you more about it at the end of the episode, so be sure to stay tuned until then. In the meantime, back to the topic. So the seven components of mental well-being. What we think of as mental well-being is different for each of us. But people with positive mental well-being are generally able to do a number of things that give them a sense of well-being and protect their mental health. So I've broken down mental well-being into seven contributory factors or seven components or seven elements, whatever you want to call them. And these are the things which if you do them, you give them some thought and make sure that you give them some priority in your life, you're going to be on track for greater stability, greater happiness, dare I say it, and overall what's called mental well-being. The first of these elements or components is self-acceptance. Accepting yourself for who you are and how you are now. It doesn't mean it has to be permanent. And if there's something you don't like about yourself or your circumstances, you can change things. Acceptance simply means accepting things as they are in the present and getting on with life, because when you accept them, you don't waste time fighting what you can't change and complaining and moaning and thinking you're worse off than anybody else. I mean, linked to this acceptance idea is the idea of our personal narrative. What is the story you tell yourself about yourself? It's a very important factor because in our lives, because actually you can change the narrative. You can put different inflections on a narrative. You can reframe a narrative. A classic example of that is somebody who has an accident, perhaps a life-changing accident, and they're not able to live life as they were doing before, before the accident. And inevitably, they'd probably spend some time complaining about their misfortune. But the get-up-and-go people, the more resilient people, the people who accept the situation, are then able to move forward by reframing their situation and finding out what they have learnt from the disaster or the, the divorce or the accident or whatever it was that held them back for a certain time and indeed even changed their life. Resilience is built on something called lifelong learning. It's a, it's a permanent mission we're on or a journey we're on, if you like, without being too highfalutin about it. And acceptance is one of the things that helps us get our head straight about who we are, what we are. We don't waste time fighting it. We just get on changing what we can change. We also recognise, when we are accepting, the things that we can't change. So there's no point fighting what you can't change, is there? So self-acceptance is where it starts. The second factor in mental well-being is leading a meaningful and satisfying life. 
Now that isn't just about work, it's at work or away from work, but a lot of people do find meaning in their work and I'm not knocking that. But like mental well-being, what is meaningful and satisfying for you is an individual matter. Some people believe that the purpose of life is to be happy. This may be understandable, but the problem is that in reality we can't be happy all the time and suffering is an inevitable part of life. So, coming back to meaning, what is a meaningful life? Meaning isn't necessarily going on a pilgrimage or devoting your life to a cause that benefits humanity. You can find meaning in things which are much closer to home. Author and researcher Emily Estefani-Smith, in her book The Power of Meaning, says we should actively seek to create a life that matters. She says, There are untapped sources of meaning all around us, right here, right now. We can find belonging in a brief connection with a barista or a newspaper vendor. We can find purpose by helping a colleague at work or our children with their assignments. We can reflect on a pivotal experience from our life to understand more deeply who we are. We can look up at a starry night and feel awe and transcendence. And if what she says isn't good enough for you, think about what the father of positive psychology, Martin Seligman, says that meaning is belonging to and serving something beyond yourself. The next on the list of the seven components of mental well-being is being resilient. Being resilient and coping with the stresses of everyday life. Personal resilience is built on a set of learnable skills. I've spoken a lot about that elsewhere. There's another podcast episode on it and also a lot on my blog. It's about the way you think, feel and act. These learnable skills, in fact, have a lot in common with the factors that protect mental well-being. Things like social connection, the ability to manage emotions well and treating life as a learning experience. So think about your level of resilience and what you can do to boost it. A quick aside here, which is that I always aim to make everything I do, whether it's a podcast like this or in my writing or my courses, I always want them to be of practical value. There's so much out there on the web. There's so much information. It's absolutely brilliant. But a lot of it just talks about the problem and it doesn't actually give you very much you know, things you can go away and do today. And I always aim to do that. So if I plug various other resources of mine, it's to point you in the direction where if something grabs your attention, like, for example, boosting your resilience or confidence, which I should be talking about later, then there's something you can do following this episode or this essay or this article, whatever it is I happen to have written. There's always something you can do and something I like to suggest to head you in the right direction. So that's what I'm about and that's what this podcast is about. And that's resilience for now. The next on the list is feeling in control. If you feel in control of your life, you probably have what the psychologists call self-agency or personal agency. This describes the ability to set realistic goals and take action to achieve them. So think about that in yourself. How well do you manage the demands in your life? And are you able to plan and execute those plans? Do you feel that your life is balanced in a way that allows you to make decisions about how you spend your time and what you do in your life? 
These are all questions that relate to one's level of self-agency. And of course, we all have to do things we don't like, and we all have things we are obliged to do and which we feel we can't control, like, for example, paying our taxes. But in realistic terms, in a day-to-day -day way, you should also feel that you can make important decisions for yourself and that those decisions are taking your life in the direction you'd like to see it go. People with so-called high agency feel a sense of control over their lives and they can make decisions about what they want or need in their life and they can act to meet those needs or have those needs met. Next on the list is confidence. Be confident and feel good about yourself. Seems like a tall order. To some extent, it's linked to self-agency. It's linked to self-acceptance. It really is a fundamental question because if you don't like yourself or feel good about yourself, this is going to be gnawing away at you and it's not exactly beneficial for mental well-being. So give it some thought. At some time, we've all felt unsure about ourselves or doubted our abilities. Some of us are fairly critical about things perhaps we've done earlier in life. And that's absolutely fine if it keeps you on the straight and narrow now. But if you're carrying around a voice on your shoulder that was bequeathed to you by a parent or carer, say, that tells you you're not good enough or you have no value, then you need to work on that. In some of us, lacking confidence can become some sort of mantra which holds us back from realising our potential. At an even more basic level, feeling underconfident can mean fewer social ties and limit your chances in relationships, career and even in life itself. Now remember I'm talking here about the components that we find in people who say they are confident and who give an, an air and impression of being confident out there in the world and they tend to achieve reasonably the things that they expect to achieve or at least move in the right direction. So confidence is one of the trickiest elements I would say because we're not taught to feel proud of ourselves and recognise our successes and in fact do all the things which build confidence we're actually encouraged by our upbringing and society to think about ourselves more modestly and in ways that tend to counter the natural drive towards self-improvement and building up your successes and your level of confidence. So it's a tricky conundrum. It needs a little thought. But equally, it's something you can work on and something you can build up. And confidence genuine confidence, and I don't mean brash, bragging people who make a lot of fuss or appear all over the place with smiling pictures on social media. I mean people who are quietly confident. And just as an aside, think about the fact that if you are confident, you don't need to make a noise about it. If you are a confident person, why would you need to tell the world where you're going on holiday or how many kids you've got or how clever your dog is? You don't really need to do those things to build up your own self-esteem and get likes. I mean, if you want to share that information, that's absolutely fine. But if your sense of well-being, your sense of confidence, your sense of self relies on external indicators over which you have no control, it can be quite a waiting game. So be confident and feel good about yourself. And if you don't know how to do that today, then there are resources available to do that. And one of those is a, a webinar which I said I'll talk about at the end.
People who benefit from positive mental well-being manage and express their emotions well. But it starts with understanding your emotions, being able to recognise an emotion in yourself and give it a name. I used to work with young people who had what was so-called anger management issues or impulse control issues, neither of which are terms I like, by the way. won't surprise you to hear, I'm sure, if you listen to me regularly. The key thing, though, is that many of them couldn't recognise their emotions. They'd had, shall we say, um, an upbringing that left them slightly impoverished in that area. So they had general terms to describe all sorts of emotions. So one that came up a lot was stress. These were kids between the age of, I'd say, 12, 13, somewhere around there, and school leaving age, so 18. So teenagers, adolescents, and they hadn't thought about their emotions because they'd never been able to think about a feeling, recognise a feeling and give it a name. So the work often involved, to start with, being able to create in them a lexicon of words to describe, to identify and use those words to describe different levels of feeling. It's a very important factor. If you can't name a feeling, how can you control it? And if you can't recognise it, how can you name it? So increasing your awareness of your emotions and beliefs drives your thinking and it influences your behaviour and affects your judgement. It'll help you navigate your life with greater confidence. Where it becomes really important is recognising those emotions and naming them, as I've said, but intervening. When strong emotions arise in yourself, being able to nip it in the bud or take yourself away somewhere where you'll do less damage and not expressing that strong emotion in violent or aggressive ways. And I don't mean interpersonal violence necessarily. I mean violence against inanimate objects. There was a fad, a craze a number of years ago about cushion bashing or venting. If you felt angry, go and bash some cushions, taking out, take it out on something. I saw a mother in a cafe uh, when the child, uh, a little little toddler, banged into a chair, made himself cry, and the mother taught the child to punish the chair. Poor darling, the chair hurt you, didn't it? Kick the chair, show the care what chair what you think. You know, this is not good. This is all building up our ability to be angry. It's not teaching people how to manage their emotions. So the ability to recognise your feelings, name them, and control them is critical to emotional and mental well-being. And finally, building and maintaining healthy relationships. We are social beings. We rely to a huge extent on the quality of the relationships we have with the people around us. So, for example, in any given relationship, I'm talking about something that uh, affects your life, not the sort of relationship you have with a service provider or when you're buying a railway ticket or something shorter term like that. Although how you approach those relationships will feed back into your mental well-being. For now, I'm talking about those important relationships in your life that are ongoing. Building and sustaining healthy relationships is the seventh of these components. I think a final word about mental well-being, final word from me, there'll never be a final word overall, a final word from me here about mental well-being is that it's got to be something we recognise as an important factor in our lives. We have to take it seriously and we have to work on it. There are things we have to do to protect 
and maintain our mental balance, our mental well-being and our emotional stability. We will be challenged at many times through our lives by circumstances we can't control. The death of a loved one, a crisis of some sort, and goodness knows we've been through and are going through a few of those at the moment. So we need to build up our resilience to be ready for those events. And there's a metaphor I've often used here in my work, which is that of coping capacity. Imagine that you have a bucket and it's your coping bucket or your stress bucket, call it what you will. It's invisible, everybody has one, you carry it around with you. And that bucket is, say, 50 to 70% full at any given time, depending on the stress, the pressure, and whatever else is going on in life. I mean, even the normal day-to-day -day stuff that we live, even in a perfect life, that bucket won't be empty. A certain amount of stress is necessary and vital to us, and there will always be something in the bucket. The problem arises when that bucket gets too full. Think about it this way. The free space in the top of the bucket, if the bucket's 80% full, that gives you 20% latitude for coping in case of an emergency. For example, you may get a phone call, as I once did, from the school of my one of my sons, saying that he was in hospital. So I dropped everything and rushed over to be with him. It wasn't too serious. It was pretty serious for him. He'd broken an arm. But the point was, it was extra demand on my already busy day. And I had to drop a few things to make the space. I couldn't possibly consider that life would go on as normal and I could fit in a visit to the hospital. Nor could I consider not going to the hospital because I had important work to do. And then I'd have been worried and stressed anyway. And my place was, was with my son at that time, I thought. And it turned out to be the right decision, by the way. But the point I'm making is, can you empty that bucket and keep it, say, no fuller than 70% stress so that you've got some latitude, some coping, some capacity? Spare capacity is the word I was looking for. If you haven't, then that's where stress management comes in. You have to be able to recognise when the bucket's getting a bit too full and do something about it. And there's plenty out there on stress management. And as I've said many times before, there's a lot on my website and I'm always available by email or any other means. You'll find me on Instagram, you'll find me on LinkedIn and via my website. So I'm always available if you have specific questions about any of the points I've talked about here today or you want more guidance or more resources. So thank you again for joining me today on this episode. This has been seven components of mental well-being. You'll find useful links in the episode notes. And while I'm on the subject of useful, if you've listened to the end and found this useful, please follow the podcast on any of the usual channels. As I said, you'll also find me on Instagram and LinkedIn, as well as on my website, where there are over a thousand well-being related posts, all with practical tips and tactics to help you get a better handle on life. Oh, and I promised to let you know about my free webinar, Be More Confident, on Eventbrite, on the 27th of this month. You'll find the link in the notes and you can book your free place now. You'll learn about the key traits shared by confident people and how to develop them in yourself. And you'll find out about the common misconceptions that stop people from realising how to harness their inner confidence. And I'll be adding, as I always do, some cool activities to help you reinforce the learning. See you there, I hope. Book now because places are limited. I keep the numbers down so I can respond to comments and questions. 
Okay, that's all for this episode. This is Barry Wimbolt thanking you again and saying goodbye for now and have a good week. All the best and over to you. Goodbye.